Emmanuel, it's good to be with you, Emmanuel. We sure are seeing a lot of each other lately. Uh, I think it's good. It's been good for us. I hope it's been good for you. Uh, like Aaron said, my guitar playing was not good, but uh, that's it's neither here nor there. It's not what I'm coming on for, thankfully. Um, this morning, as we look at Acts 2 and as we sit with Pentecost, uh, I, I was praying into this. I was just drawn to the church waiting before Pentecost. I want to reflect on that with you. Uh, but to begin, there was a, a play that premiered in Paris in 1953 by Samuel Beckett, the Irish playwright. And this play would go on to be described by the British Royal National Theatre as the most significant English play of the 20th century. This play was called Waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot. And in this play, uh, there's two men, Vladimir and Estragon, and these two men open up on a scene, there's a dead tree behind them, and as they start talking, it becomes apparent that these two men are waiting for Godot. They're waiting. And uh, they talk back and forth, they get distracted, they wonder when Godot is going to come, they wonder what they should do when Godot appears, and then they also wonder what they should do if Godot never arrived. As Act 1 comes to a close, a little boy comes on stage and announces to them that Godot has not come today, but he plans on coming tomorrow. And the two men look at each other and say, we should really find some shelter, and the curtains close with them just standing, waiting. Well, Act 2 follows the same theme, although now the desperation is mounting as they're waiting for Godot. The thoughts are starting to get more extreme. What do we do if Godot does not arrive? And as Act 2 comes to an end, the same boy comes back on stage, announces once again, Godot is not here. Uh, he says he will be coming tomorrow. And the curtains close on the two men waiting for Godot. As critics have sat with this play, they say Samuel Beckett was capturing something, something about what it means to live in the 20th and now 21st century. Do you feel it as you sort of describe that scene, that sense of the inevitable waiting, the, the dread of waiting, the longing of waiting. And yet what Beckett is pointing to, the question you have to ask is, what is Godot, right? Like, what are we waiting for? What is it that we are all desperately waiting for? I, I think what Beckett got profoundly right in this play, why it's resonated so much over these last 70 years, is that there is this dread of waiting within us. We really, really hate waiting. And yet what I think Beckett missed that Pentecost and Acts 2 wants to give us is what we're waiting for. So I want to turn, actually, before we jump into Acts 2, to Luke, which is the prequel to Acts. And just with one verse, you don't even have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But it's going to be Luke 24, verse 49. This was actually in our gospel reading last week for the Ascension. Jesus is going to say, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus tells the church to wait. And interestingly, I just have to bring it up. He tells them to wait in the city, right? They're to wait in the city. Why is it the disciples had to wait in the city? Or maybe uh, the first question to ask that I want to go over with Pentecost is what happens when the disciples wait in the city? What is it that they're waiting for? What 
what is it that Beckett is trying so hard and waiting for Godot to circle around that the disciples discover when they wait in the city? And then I secondly want to end the sermon by talking about the obstacles that hold us back from waiting today in the city. So let's turn to Acts 2. In Acts 2, verse 1, Luke is going to tell us, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All of the disciples of Jesus, after he's ascended to heaven, are gathered and they are waiting. Again, the question is, what happens when the disciples wait in the city? Well, look with me at verse 2. There's going to be three signs of what happens in the city, three signs that the promised power, the Spirit, is going to come from on high. So let's look at the first sign in verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So a sound comes. Uh, It's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Wind is the word in Greek that means spirit, means breath. Luke is sort of prepping us here, but Luke is interested in this sound. It's a mighty sound, and Luke tells us the sound came from heaven. So so here maybe is where Samuel Beckett in Waiting for Godot is onto something. We are waiting, right? There's something in our natural world, in our sort of imminent frame in which we live, that we need to be intruded upon. We're waiting for something. There is something we desperately need that must come from heaven, and Luke tells us the sound is going to fill the whole house now, in Acts 16, sorry, Acts 9, uh, Exodus 19, pardon me, in Exodus 19, there's going to be a description of when God descends on Mount Sinai. And it's just interesting that in God's descent, it says the mountain of Mount Sinai is going to be aflame, there's going to be smoke, and then there's going to be all these loud noises that are described as trumpets. And then it's going to say God thunders from Mount Sinai. Clearly, God shows up. God comes in power with a sound. He wants to get our attention that he is here. He has intruded upon us. The the second sign Luke is going to depict that happens in Acts 2, though, comes in verse 3, where Luke is going to say, Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Divided tongues as of fire. Uh, If a sound is one of the ways God appears throughout the Bible then fire also is commonly used to describe God's presence. Again, this passage in Exodus 19 is where God is descending on Mount Sinai, and he's there in fire. There's fire to represent God's holiness, his majesty, the glory of the Lord. I love the other description where God shows up in fire. It's a little more intimate. It's to Moses. As Moses is walking by the mountain, he sees this bush that's on fire fire, the burning bush that's sort of perpetually ignited. And as soon as Moses approaches, the Lord says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. The Lord's presence is here on this bush. And yet in Acts 2, as the church is waiting, it says fire, as tons of fire is going to descend and rest on each one of them. Uh, one commentator I love just noted that it's almost as if every believing Christian now in Acts 2 is going to become 
a burning bush of the Lord. Every believing Christian is going to become a Mount Sinai upon which the Lord has descended. And so these disciples, as they go into the city, they're going aflame. That's what Luke wants us to see. The Spirit is going to give them power, and yet that presence, that holiness, that glory of the Lord is filling them and is going with them on their mission. And yet, as just a final note, the Spirit does not descend simply on the ordained, right? Simply on the apostles or simply on those educated, deserving elites. No, no, the Spirit descends on each and every one of them. The sound has filled the house and the Spirit has descended on each one of them. This is the power and the presence of God here in the house. And yet, yet Luke gives us one more sign of the Spirit that takes place, and it's in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Man, what a cool, I've never been here at Emmanuel for Pentecost before. What a beautiful and confusing <laughs> experience <laughs> to hear the tongues that are going out into the world. So what's going on with this third sign? The tongues of utterance that are given as sort of this miracle of the Spirit. Well, we know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about tongues in an almost different way. There's like this distinction going on. 1 Corinthians, these tongues need to be interpreted. In Acts 2, these tongues are the languages of the nations. These are understandable languages of the world. And the disciples are going to go out and following uh, verse 12, uh, verse 11, sorry, the disciples are going to say, Uh, the mighty works of God. The disciples are going to proclaim among the nations in each tongue the mighty works of God as the church has sat with this sign. What is going on as tongues are there going out into the city for the nations? The church has very consistently seen this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? So, So go back with me to the Tower of Babel for a minute. In the Tower of Babel, which is described in Genesis 11, the people of the world gather and they decide, interestingly, to build for themselves a city in which as they build the city, they will make a tower so tall that their glory, their name, shall be proclaimed across the world. This is the vision of the city of Babel. This is the vision of the earthly city, is it not? That when we get swept into the city, what we start to find is this pressure or maybe even this temptation that if we just run hard enough, if we work fast enough, if we're talented and agile enough, then maybe we can start building our own name. Maybe we can start building our own tower. And if it just gets tall enough, then maybe our name will finally be great among the earth. And yet here in Acts 2, what we find is the reversal of Babel. Instead of the people gathering in the city to build their own greatness, the church, the disciples have gathered in the city, have been filled with the Spirit, and they're going out and proclaiming to the nations in all of these scattered tongues the glory of God. This is now the heavenly city that is pressed up against the earthly city, that has appeared in the earthly city. The city of God is now present among the city of men. And so in Acts 2, we catch a vision of what we're waiting for. We're waiting on the Spirit to come to the city. We're waiting on the Spirit to come to the city. 
Because as you follow Acts forward, what you find is that the Spirit through the church is going to be at work to renew and restore the city. This is what the Spirit does. Uh, As the disciples go out from this Pentecost moment, you're going to find in Acts 3 a lame beggar sitting on the side of the road that filled with the Spirit, Peter and John are going to heal. And as this beggar is healed, the crowds start to gather Crowds from all over the place that are looking to all of their own devices, that are looking to build their own cities, and they're going to be challenged. They're going to be called to look instead to the Lord, to see the Lord, and to come out of, Peter at one point says, leave your wickedness behind. Come join in the heavenly city. Come start building God's kingdom instead of building your own. Again and again through Acts, the church is going to go out through the city, and as they transform the city, the city is going to then go out to the world. Uh, One commentator notes that what begins in Acts 2, the renewal of Jerusalem through this powerful coming of the Spirit, is by the end of the first century going to be present in every major city across the Roman Empire. This is why when the Spirit is coming to the church, the Spirit tells them, you have to wait in the city. If you are out in the countryside, if you're uh, sitting in the suburbs, nothing wrong with the suburbs, but you're probably only going to find one language out there in the suburbs. But in the city, the nations, the nations are gathered. The diversity and the complexity of God's world are present so that the worship and glory of God can be proclaimed and spread back out to the world. It's beautiful what takes place in Pentecost. Yet, yet there are obstacles to our waiting. Are there not? Uh, As I particularly think about life in the city. Um, as, as Aaron said, my wife and I spent five years here in Chicago while we were at Moody. We've been out for four years and we're praying deeply with much anticipation about coming back. I know that the city is fast-paced, right? This is the first obstacle to waiting. It's hard to wait on the Spirit to come when life is so complex and fast-paced around us. I, I love that as Luke Uh, describes the scene of response to the Spirit coming, to these glorious works of the Lord being proclaimed, he's going to just keep using this word, bewilderment. Like, they're just, the city's just kind of confused. In fact, you almost get this sense of the scene that it's the festival of Pentecost. All of these Jewish people are gathered from all the nations. This amazing thing is happening, and yet it's so easy to lose sight of the Spirit in all of the complexity and fast-paced nature of the city. So the first obstacle is that the city is fast-paced. The second, I think, is that the spirit is confusing. <laughs> the spirit's confusing. I, I kind of love that Luke just gives us a very human moment where these devout religious Jews, he notes in verse 5, uh, that these religious Jews are gathered. They're here to worship God. And yet this sign of tongues was not what they were expecting. Right? The, the sign of the, spirit that, of the Spirit showing up is just vastly different than anything they had been anticipating before. And so for us, I have found again and again and again that as I am trying to wait on the Spirit, I often find myself staring at signs that are bewildering and confusing and that I do not understand. Why is it that I thought this path was going to open up for my life, but instead another has emerged? Why is it that I thought if I just took the next step forward, everything for God would start moving, and yet 
here I am waiting still, right? For you, as you think about your experience with the Spirit, there are many moments that you've probably stared in bewilderment, wondering what is going on. And Luke offers us just this sort of beautiful contrast uh, that happens right in verse 12 and verse 13. If you look at verse 13 with me first, some in the city, when they encounter the Spirit, begin mocking it. They actually say that the Spirit is too much for us. This is too bizarre, too strange. And trying to explain it, trying to let themselves off the hook, the only thing that comes to mind is, doesn't it seem like these guys have had too much wine? Like, just, just kind of weird. We don't like this. This is uncomfortable. Yet in verse 12, Luke offers us this other vision of responding to the confusion, responding to confusion in the city, where in verse 12, some who were amazed and perplexed managed to say to one another, what does this mean? Isn't that a great question to ask in our confusion with signs of the Spirit? Uh, I, I recently heard, I don't know if you've seen this story, circling around uh, about a man in the Middle East who was burned three times, apparently, by ISIS and was attempted to be stoned to death, and yet he miraculously survived. He was a Christian. That Jesus protected him. And the story is going around so much, I, I've had two or three people in the last week bring it up to me. And my first gut instinct is, man, that is weird, <laughs> right? Like, that's... It's just weird. It's, I don't know what to do with that. It's strange. But as I've been sitting with Acts 2, I just love this invitation that these religious Jewish people offer us. What does this mean? What does this mean? Uh, my wife and I, very real time, have been uh, moving through the process of, of selling our house. Some of you may have heard last weekend, we unexpectedly, within just a couple of days, got an offer on our house, which was amazing. We said, Surely this is the hand of God, right? Surely the Spirit's moving. This is wonderful. And just a couple days ago, as happens, for just very innocuous reasons, the offer fell apart. And we, we were just sitting there in confusion, bewilderment, uh, perplexed, as Luke would say. And yet, I, I just love, as I've been meditating on this passage, I just was drawn again and again to ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean when we're confused with the Spirit? So if the first obstacle is that the city is fast-paced, second obstacle for, to waiting is that the Spirit can be confusing, third obstacle to waiting on the Spirit, if we're truly being honest with ourselves, is that we actually would prefer to be in control and save ourselves, right? This is really the heart of Acts 2, as Peter is going to stand up and declare this sermon to all of these religious Jewish people gathered for this festival. The heart of what he gets at is, are you more interested in saving yourself or are you willing to repent and turn to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? It's right there in verse 21. The end of this sign, the whole point of this manifestation of the Spirit, the whole point of the Spirit coming to the city is that the Spirit wants to invite and perhaps at points, challenge the city. Will you rely on yourself to be saved or will you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? I think one of the biggest reasons why we struggle to wait on the Spirit is because if we're being honest, it would just be 
easier and more comfortable to try to save ourselves. Or maybe for you, it would just be more comfortable, more easy if you could just try to save the city yourself, right? If you just, in your own power, in your own effort, not having to wait, not having to rely, not having to depend on others, wouldn't it be nice if you could just carve out your niche, do that good thing that you so long to do, and just sort of push it through on your own power? To return full circle, I think when Samuel Beckett wrote Waiting for Godot, he was wrestling with this sense of looking for something to save us, right? That each of us, if we're being honest, we're, we're tempted by a various Godot. There, there's something that sort of surfaces for us. Like, man, if, if Godot would just arrive, if this would just arrive, if my new job would just arrive, if my marriage would just arrive, if that new opportunity or promotion or position were to just arrive, then maybe everything would be okay. And the invitation of Pentecost, the invitation of the Spirit to the city is to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So my, my prayer for Emmanuel this Pentecost, uh, as we sort of bring this to a close, is that we together would wait on the Spirit rather than trying to save the city or ourselves by ourselves. And the honest truth is that waiting is going to be hard, uh, that waiting will find ourselves often sort of pushed and pulled by this fast-paced city that we find ourselves in. We might get confused by a spirit that doesn't show up where we expect. And ultimately, again and again, we're going to have to wrestle. We're going to have to wrestle with this desire to save ourselves. But my prayer is that as we wait, Oh, that the Spirit might come to the city of Chicago through Emmanuel Anglican. Oh, that the Spirit might come through us in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your families. The Spirit does come. That, that's the promise of Pentecost. The Spirit has come and will come. Will we have the faith to wait on the Spirit? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your signs, these confusing and perplexing signs, Lord, of the power and the presence of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that this feast day of Pentecost would be a new filling for each person here with your presence and power, Lord, that there would be a new fire descending upon them, a new mighty sound, Lord, that energizes their work, and a new mission, a new heart, Lord, even for the neighborhood of Uptown, for the city of Chicago, Lord, that all nations, all people across this beautiful city might be drawn to worship and proclaim your name rather than building their own city. But Lord, in order to do that, I do pray for the courage and the faith to wait, to insist, Lord, on moving behind and following your spirit rather than building our own kingdoms. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we have both your peace and your power. And I pray this upon this beloved church in Jesus' name. Amen.